Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are joined by Marissa Marks, the Senior Director of Partnerships and Programs with the Dressember Foundation. Marissa is responsible for spearheading the Dressember Network, developing Dressember's programs, and collaborating with ethical brand partners. Prior to joining Dressember, Marissa received her Master's in Human Rights and International Relations with a research focus on gender-based violence in conflict zones. And previously, Marissa worked in academic research and communications and fundraising positions within the nonprofit sector. So, hi, Marissa. Hi there. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. This is an episode that's going to be focusing on human trafficking, which, I mean, Kristen and I have covered a lot of heavy subjects in the past, but this one might be a little bit more personal for people. And so I just want listeners to really take care of themselves. And if you're not in a space to engage with this discussion, don't. So, Marissa, what is Dressember? Explain it to us. <laughs> Dressember is an anti-human trafficking organization. We are most well-known for our style challenge that we host every December. We invite people around the world to join us in wearing a dress or a tie as a way to generate awareness and fundraise for global anti-trafficking programs. So this is a special year for us. We're celebrating our 10-year anniversary in that 10 years of Dressember being a 501c3 nonprofit organization, we have raised um, 16 million US dollars in that 10 years for global anti-trafficking work. So we have been joined by over 20,000 people participating in the style challenge in the month of December um, that really are the backbone. We call our fundraisers advocates that are really the backbone of that that massive amount of money that we've been able to raise and the impact that has come from it as well. So we we have the December style challenge, but we're quite busy year round as well, just doing a lot around um, awareness and education on the issue of human trafficking. And then our secondary mission, um, more, more specific, is to generate awareness around the link between fashion and human trafficking because we're a style, like a fashion-focused campaign, it's really important to us to make that connection between exploitation, unfortunately, in in the garment industry, in the fashion industry, it's incredibly prevalent. So we do that year round. Um, We focus a lot on the education piece of that, just making people more aware of their purchases. So I'm sure we'll dive into more of the specifics, but that in a nutshell is is Dressember. I'm curious about what Dressember does with the money that it raises. Yeah, great question. And probably my favorite one to answer, because that's really my role within the organization is we, what's really special about, about Dressember is we have the Dressember network, which is um, about 20 organizations. So this is like for our, our main campaign in the US, I should, I should clarify, there's, there's two different. So we have Dressember Canada, so our Canadian donors can receive tax receipts. And that is an exclusive partnership with International Justice Mission Canada. International Justice Mission is the world's largest anti-trafficking organization. They were Dressember's flagship partner um, back in 2013. They still remain our, our largest partner for both campaigns, actually. So for Dressember Canada, the money that is raised exclusively benefits International Justice Mission um, and their global work. So they... They have field offices all over the world and they work in kind of every area of anti-trafficking from prevention to intervention and aftercare. In the U.S., we have, it's a bit, it's a bit different of a model. We um, have the Dressember Network, like I said, that's made up of about 20, 20 different organizations around the world, about half in the U.S. and then half international. And um, similarly to IJM's work, We have our three pillars, which are prevention, intervention, and survivor empowerment. So the money that's raised for Dressember Canada goes to IJM. The money that's raised for, it's kind of like Dressember Canada and then the Dressember world. Like we don't have different countries for everyone else just falls into the like U.S. bucket. And those organizations are also working in those three pillars. Um, 
and to kind of break down why we have so many, so many partners, so many different organizations. Human trafficking is an incredibly nuanced issue, right? There's not like one program that's going to solve this, this problem. And we're really passionate about kind of hitting it from all these different angles. So when you give to Dressember, you are effectively giving to 20 plus programs in 12 plus countries. And not only is it like a lot of people, when they think about human trafficking, they think about like the intervention, the the rescue work. Um, and I, I, I have like air quotes, right? And like, that's what people envision anti-trafficking work as, is um, like working with law enforcement to actually like offer a pathway out, offer victims a pathway out. But it's so much, there's so much more that needs to be done outside of just the actual like intervention efforts. So we do a lot of prevention work with like at-risk youth here in, in the U.S. So human trafficking is a very intersectional issue. Um, it's interwoven with a lot of social justice issues. So um, we know that certain groups are mo- more vulnerable to being trafficked than others. And a lot of our prevention work is, um, like I said, with with youth, we are, I'm in California myself, we have the largest foster care population in the nation. And there's a huge link between exiting or um, like transitional age foster youth. So that kind of like 18 to 26 year old range um, traffickers are, are targeting them because they are, are vulnerable. Same thing with like homeless runaway youth, LGBTQ plus youth, people of color, really in indigenous communities. Like this is an issue that is, that is targeting the most vulnerable in our societies. So I'm, I'm glad you started talking about what the organizations you partner with do. I think, I think maybe because there's this misconception that people have about what the rescue looks like, like, quote unquote, for human trafficking, let's talk about what human trafficking is, because um, I think a lot of people don't know what it is. Like, what is it? <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people's perception of the issue is how it's portrayed in the media, right? There's like really famous movies. Taken. (laughs) (laughs) Name one. And that's kind of what people know of of human trafficking, right? It's like the way it's seen in the media. (laughs) I'm trying not to name examples, but it's a lot in the media. We see a lot of sensationalized like imagery of trafficking. And in my work with Dressember in the last like five or so years, that's not what trafficking looks like the day to day. I have, I have yet to meet a survivor that was trafficked in that way. And we interact with a lot of survivors more often than not trafficking happens within the family. So it's familial trafficking, unfortunately, very, very unfortunate statistic. And there's not, you know, I spoke a little bit about imagery. Like when you're, when you hear human trafficking, I think the way that it's shown in the media is like, you know, people with like chains or tape over their mouth. And it's, it's not, it's not so much physical force. It's, it's emotional and it's psychological coercion. So people will often say like, Oh, why doesn't a victim of trafficking just leave? Like, if can, can they leave? Like, are they, or are they being locked in a, a, a dungeon somewhere? And it, it's so, it's so complicated. And the answer is no, they can't just leave because they're this, this is, this is their life. And so, so much of human trafficking is, I mean, the definition is force, fraud, or coercion. And so much of trafficking, like the reason that victims don't leave is because they're being threatened by their trafficker or they don't have another option, right? They don't, they don't have a pathway out. We're, we're really big address number on debunking myths around trafficking, because the more we can be aware of what it actually looks like, which is really, it is really hard to identify human trafficking because we're not looking out for like tape over kids' mouths and this like kind of stranger danger, like kidnapping scenario that we see in the media so often. There are like certain signs we can look out for, but it is incredibly difficult to spot human trafficking. It's happening right in front of our noses all the time in every every community, everyone's backyard. It is very much happening in the Western world it just looks quite different than we've come to know it. Could you could you sketch a little bit some of the like I don't know if demographics is the right word that I'm looking for here but like how much of human trafficking is like within a country versus like cross border and um what are the kinds of like 
drivers of human trafficking? Um, like, what are the traffickers getting out of it, I guess? Yeah, well, right now, I mean, in in response to just for as a like present day example with the Ukraine crisis, the war going on in Ukraine, there are so many, so many people at risk of trafficking, right? Where there is like conflict, there is vulnerability. And we funneled a lot of funds this year into like bordering countries like Romania, where refugees are fleeing and traffics traffickers are aware of their vulnerabilities, their their lack of lack of income and desperation, unfortunately. So yeah, cross-border trafficking is is a thing, but also like there are so many people being trafficked in their own communities. And I think that's something else we see so often too, is it being, it is, it is an issue at the border that, that does happen, but um, there are definitely Americans being trafficked in America and Canadians being trafficked in Canada. Can you maybe give an example of like, we don't need like a specific case, but like what are, what might a within border case of human trafficking look like? So we we also just launched a podcast at Dressember. And the reason I, I bring this up is because our, our first episode was on familial trafficking. And I myself even learned so much. And um, we interview survivors of trafficking on the podcast. And what is becoming more and more apparent is, um, and this isn't to like generalize all everyone's experience, but a lot of trafficking takes place in like the teenage years in, in the home. So when there is familial trafficking, to kind of paint a picture, that is one of the most common types of trafficking. And yeah, it's happening like from in in that early adolescent age. Is it a situation? I guess every situation is different, eh? It is. Every situation is so different. That's why I want to be really careful not to like generalize any anything, right? Because we're hearing from all these different survivors and every experience is so different. And it's not always familial. There's, it's really common also like the, the sort of boyfriend, lover boy scenario. Yeah. Pretty, pretty self-explanatory when you are, when you're with someone and, and that person is, um, has gained your trust and has groomed you. And then you are, they become your trafficker as well. So those are two like really common types that we see in, in, on, on this side of the world, um, internationally. And, and I think, you know, to paint an even broader picture, we focus a lot on sex trafficking. That is what everyone thinks. And, and labor trafficking is equally, if not more prevalent, um, in the U S as well. So lots of labor trafficking, um, internationally, but also in the U S in, in agriculture, in the garment industry, hotels, like, Labor, people are absolutely being exploited for labor. Domestic work is really common um, to have a a house worker, a maid and and not not be paying them essentially for their work like that. That is that is trafficking. There was like a sensational news story recently, I think, about some politician in the United States having taken away the passport of their housekeeper. That is huge. Like and I when I'm speaking about cross border trafficking too, like not having so many, so many refugees are fleeing with, with no, no passport and that, or if they do have one, yes. If you take somebody's passport that doesn't have other options like that, you, they, they cannot, they cannot leave. Like then you're, you really are like bound to that person. We talked about this a little bit in our forced labor episode as well. Um, but it's really interesting that like as an organization, you guys focus a lot on the sex trafficking, which Kristen and I have not really discussed a whole lot because it's a really common thing that affects a lot of people that Kristen and I, well, I mean, I don't know Kristen, but I don't think we have a lot of personal experience with. So it's really nice to be able to talk to you about it because um, it's so important to, to like dispel myths, you know? Yeah, we try to focus on both. We are about to, since it's almost December, um, release our like 31 days of statistics that we put out in in the month of December. Every day we, we release like a statistic and these are like incredibly vetted. We've done the research. A lot of them come from our partners in the field. And we're really, we really try to like, you'll see when they come out there, they're so diverse in, in what we're talking about from labor trafficking to sex trafficking, types of trafficking, demographics of, of survivors and victims, like when I say this is a nuanced issue, we could have a podcast episode for and talk about this for 10 hours. Like there's 
there's so many different points I would like to hit. I read a blog post on the Dressember website that was really interesting about psychological coercion, which I think a lot of people might not fully understand, especially coming from that like kind of victim blamey mentality of like, well, why don't they just leave? So like to quote the blog post that I read, I thought it was really well worded. It says that psychological coercion is an intentional pattern of behavior often used alongside other forms of abuse, which can include threats, excessive regulation, intimidation, humiliation, and forced isolation, uh, designed to punish, dominate, exploit, exhaust, create fear and confusion, and increase dependency. It strips a person of their identity and breaks down the very core of who they are. And I was just wondering if you had anything more to add to that. Yeah, I think I, I mentioned psychological coercion early on. And I think the main thing that like I want to bold and underline there is are the threats. Like I can't tell you how many cases I've learned of where the victim cannot leave because their trafficker is threatening to kill them or to kill their family or hurt their loved ones. Like they they literally have no choice. They're they're under threat and it's heartbreaking, frankly, like to to imagine being in that situation and like wanting so bad to get out and and you can't because you are being threatened. You've made the point a few times, Marissa, that um, human trafficking is something that's happening throughout our communities um, and we just may not be seeing it. So I'm wondering if you have any tips on how anyone that's listening to this podcast can maybe recognize trafficking and um, if they do see something that they think might be trafficking, what should they do about it? So we, we talked a little bit about passports. If someone is not carrying though their own identity documents, that is a major red flag. Like, so trafficking is dif- different than smuggling, right? But oftentimes with trafficking, there's a lot of, there's transportation involved. Like you're, you're moving from one point to another. So we have like programs that train, uh, partner programs that train um, like hotel workers, how to spot trafficking and like at the, at seaports, and you'll see it in the airports now everywhere. There's there's sign signage in like the restrooms. They don't the signs don't tell you exactly what to look out for. And again, a lot of them are sensationalizing it, like because you're not you're not going to just like be able to see see it if you're not looking for it. But I think um, like I said, if if someone is traveling and not really like doesn't have access to their to their documents, that's a red flag. Um, not just not being able to like speak for themselves and just being under the control of someone else is, is a red flag. Are there any signs somebody might have from like, if an acquaintance or something, um, if something might not be right there? Yeah. I think like there's something in your gut that tells you, right. When something's off, you see something that's off, you hear something that's off and you are asking about, um, about what to do if someone does see that and, call the national human trafficking hotline or, or some states and cities, counties have local human trafficking hotlines. That's what you'll see like on the posters and the airports. I think if you suspect something, if your gut is telling you something is off, whether you think someone is being, maybe your friend is keeping secrets and you think they're, they're, they're being hurt by someone, whether that's trafficking or abuse, physical or verbal, especially if it's yeah, some, someone close to you, there is no there is no harm in, in reporting it, um, and and just being a friend and talking to them about it. Yeah, I think being curious is probably a really important thing because it's such a hard thing to talk about, and if you don't know the person so well, it's like being brave enough to ask them, like, "Hey, are you okay?" Yeah, and like you don't need to be like, "Are you being trafficked?" Right, or is like you can kind of tiptoe around what you're getting at, but just checking in on people. Like you said, I think being curious is oftentimes like people are just looking for someone to ask and to care, right? Like that are going through something and just need, just need a friend. So there's, there's so many like survivor stories that are just kind of like, like how, how did no one notice, right? Like, especially when it's happening, like in, in the home and there's like teachers and babysitters and it's like, it would have just taken one person to make that call. And that entire person's that the victim's trajectory would have been completely different. All it would take is one person to, to make a call. So I want to move into a little bit more of the logistics of the industry as a whole. How big is this industry? I was reading, uh, well, I mean, I, I was watching the December video that you guys put out again to prep and someone in there said that this is a $150 billion industry 
which is like comparing, <laughs> he compared it to buying every Starbucks franchise in the world and every single MBA team and still having enough money left over to send every child in America to college for four years, which only makes me angry about the whole Elon Musk Twitter thing, but that's like a whole sidebar. <laughs> We're like, like, why is this industry so huge? Like, wh- what is going on? Because like, obviously, Kristen and I, like, well, again, Kristen, I can't speak for you. I assume that you're not like buying sex from people and not knowing, you know, whether they're being coerced or not. But it's not just that. Like, it's the things we buy and it's like the the hotels we go to apparently now. So like, how is this industry so big? Yeah. Okay. So the, the stat you're talking about, the $150 billion industry is from, I believe it's from International Labor Organization. And it's hard to think like these numbers are so big, right? And then there's there's another one that goes around a lot that was like 40 million people are currently experiencing trafficking. And it is such a hard thing to, it's an underground crime. So it's really hard to collect data on this crime because it's like I kind of keep alluding to, it's really hard to see, like to, to spot, to identify, and it's underreported. Um, but I oh, just want to go back to the, the 40 million stat. It is also like increasing like the, the international labor organization. So that 40 million stat was going around for years. And in 2021, it was raised to 50 million people, an in- increase of 10 million over the last five years. So there's a few, there's a few reasons for this. Like a few, a few theories I have that, um, it's being reported more, which is amazing. Um, I think it's always been really prevalent, but the actual like term of human trafficking is we're, we're being able to identify, call it what it is, right? Like this, this thing. So we, we partner with an organization in the U S called human trafficking Institute that puts out the federal human trafficking report every year. There's like an increase in cases because it's being reported more, right? Like we're actually, we're, we're seeing it like in the judicial system because people are identifying it, people are reporting it. And thankfully like victims now, now have a case, but it, it is a humongous issue. But I think the numbers like are reflecting that um, people are more aware of, of the issue now. That's always kind of the catch 22 though. Like when numbers are going up, um, but it's because reporting is better. <laughs> Hard to interpret that. Yeah. And so the thing with human trafficking that is just so unfortunate and it's so prevalent is like when you, the difference with this crime, right? Like if you are selling drugs, like once you sell those drugs, they're gone, they disappear. You get your money, the deal is over. With people, you can traffic them over and over and over again. So a lot of people are in these situations for years. And it's also extremely profitable. You can, for traffickers, like that's the $150 billion uh, industry because traffickers can have, you know, just a few victims and be trafficking them over and over and over again. And the profit is insane. So we kind of know a little bit about how people get into these situations, although it's very different for everybody and everyone's story is unique. But it's ultimately usually because someone in your life that you trust is abusing that trust or because you're in a desperate situation or both. How do people get out of these situations? Hopefully someone will identify it and report it. Um, That's one. Or the way to get out of it is to have another option, right? Like if you're not, like this is a highly economical crime. Um, and we, we are so big at Dress Ember on our last pillar, which is the survivor empowerment. So within that is like aftercare, counseling and uh, trauma therapy. And it's like this holistic pillar of so much, like there's so much healing involved in your like immediate healing journey from, from being a victim of trafficking. But then the, after that comes like, okay, so what do you do now? How do you not get re-victimized? And the number one thing, how to get how to not get re-victimized is to be able to achieve sustained liberation. Survivors are just like us, right? Like we, I'm sitting here on a computer with a roof over my head and I have the ability to do that because I have an income. And if survivors are equipped with like education and the tools to thrive, the, the likelihood of recidivism is so much lower. So yeah, I think 
by providing more like access to education, job programs, and helping survivors achieve financial stability so that they don't find themselves back in that situation. I was listening to, I've been listening to the podcast, by the way, and I really like it. And I'm going to plug it for everybody at the end. It's very good if anyone wants to know more about this. It's Dressember interviewing people who have experienced these. So if, if anyone has more like questions about details or people's personal lived experiences, that's a really great resource that I think is 10 episodes long. You guys are just about finished publishing. Yeah. And every, like listening to that podcast, it's, it really like, makes you realize every story is so unique. Like every, every person we interviewed on that podcast has a different, and they're not even like explicitly talking about their stories. That's not really the purpose of the the podcast, but it just is becomes so abundantly clear that this is not like a one size fits all problem. Uh, they all have different experiences, which means like the solution is so complex as well, but the overarching theme of the, of pretty much everyone being interviewed is like what I was saying about like the need for like, yes, services aftercare is incredibly important. Like the healing programs I talked about, but the most critical thing is that is achieving financial stability. So in a way, like any sorts of policies that help to reduce financial vulnerability or to reduce exclusion in society are preventive um, for human trafficking. Is that, is that fair to say? That is absolutely fair to say. Yeah. There's such a inequality with, with who is being trafficked. Um, in terms of when, when you look at like poverty in, in our, in our countries and when they find themselves in a situation such as trafficking, it is more often than not because of a vulnerable situation. So what does it look like right now when somebody's trying to change their situation? Because I, I genuinely don't know, like, I w- if, if it were to happen to me, I wouldn't know where to go for support. I wouldn't know what that would look like. And I'd be scared of being judged. Like, that's that's how I would feel. And so, like, if, if it was me in that situation, which is the only thing I can do to really relate, it would be like, well, maybe I would, like, reach out to a women's, like, home. But then, you know, you're in between, like, then you're, you're, you're experiencing unstable housing and your income was probably like in a lot of cases coming from the person who you're trying to escape from. So yeah, like, how does that, how, what does it look like to leave? Again, I think it, I think it really depends on like what the traffic, some, what the trafficking situations are. Like every trafficking situation and experience is so different, but like for, for one example, yeah, like you said, I think seeking support and resources, like Step one is getting in touch with the hotline and then learning about what services are offered in in your community. There are so many amazing anti-human trafficking programs for for all all kinds of support. And I think uh, establishing a relationship with with a local organization is like is is critical to to contribute to your healing. Well, I think also like a big important first step is recognizing that that's what you're experiencing, right? A lot of people probably don't even realize that what is happening to them is like would qualify. Yeah, it wasn't even a term we used 20 years ago. So how could people like, and there's people now that are just now recognizing their experience decades later, like, okay, yeah, that that was that was trafficking. You know, you kind of know that something bad happened to you and it wasn't right, but now being able to like identify it for what it is and and society too, like acknowledging these these people's experiences as as victims. We're, we're going in the right direction, but there's still so much work to be done. The organizations that you partner with that try to support people in changing their circumstances, what is happening to the perpetrators of this crime? Can we talk about, because we've been talking about um, the people who are experiencing it a lot, but what about the people who are perpetrating? Like what is going on there and what and what should be going on justice should be happening right world like they would pay for their crimes uh the crime they've committed it's not so easy like from a legal standpoint to that like i like i've alluded to like it is such a hidden underground crime unfortunately many traffickers do not ever face prosecution so that is something that we're working on as well, though, like training. So training law enforcement on trafficking is key for law enforcement to be able to identify it is key for our judicial system to be able to identify victims as victims is key, right? Like so many, we, we did a campaign a couple years ago um, 
there is unfortunately a massive link between actually being a victim of trafficking and committing a crime under the control of your trafficker, whether it's like robbing your buyer or stealing something for your trafficker. There, there's a really big overlap with criminality and, and being a victim of trafficking. And to for a survivor to truly move on from their experience and to get a job, right? Like we can have, they can't have a criminal record. So we partner with one program that does like record expungement. Uh, they, it's pro bono law firms across the country that are providing legal support and vacatures for victims of human trafficking so that they can get their record clear and that states can actually, and every state is different, at least in the U.S. I'm not as familiar with um, the laws in Canada around victimization, but um, some states are really on their way to seeing victims of human trafficking for, for what they are and acknowledging that their experience of committing a crime was under the control of someone else and other states are a little bit further behind, but I kind of switched. I kind of pivoted with that answer there because yeah, it's really, it's hard to, it's hard to lock up traffickers or to to prosecute traffickers rather. And it's also hard for victims to, I think, feel, how can you ever feel that justice has been served when someone has done this to you? I, I don't, it's really, really challenging. Well, and and considering what a mess the justice system is in general, I I mean, this is a whole other conversation to be had, but like at what point is treating the perpetrators to the messed up justice system only making the problem worse because then they're more likely to reoffend or or they'll be more desperate themselves when they get out, you know, because no one's ever supported after. Yeah. And and sadly, a lot of traffickers have been trafficked themselves. It happens all the time where there's a scenario where the victim becomes a trafficker and they're actually recruiting for their trafficker and then they're trafficking people together. And it's kind of like this vicious cycle um, that we're seeing. I wonder, um, I'm I'm curious about this, uh, when there are human trafficking interventions how do the organizations that are dealing with that and law enforcement agencies deal with the sort of mistrust of, I guess, authority in general, but specifically law enforcement organizations? Yeah, well, I think Kyla had mentioned about like hesitancy to um, not only like identify yourself as a victim, but also seek help, right? Because it's really scary. And um, so many times that is going to fire back on the victim in, in terms of like their trafficker finding out that, Oh, this person went to the police. So it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Some programs have, we actually have a new, a new partner. This is a really good example in the UK that has what's called a victim navigation program. So their navigators work alongside law enforcement for that reason specifically, so that as a victim, you're not only going, you're going if you don't feel comfortable going to the police and this victim that you get in touch with the victim navigator and they're sort of like a like case manager for you, I think having someone from an organization like walk alongside you in that journey is really, really powerful, whether it's a social worker, a case manager, the, these victim navigators. I think that can help a lot with like the fear of, of going to law enforcement. Just having someone by your side who you know has your back, right? Yeah. And is like survivor informed, like has the training and the experience to, to deal with this really, really complex crime and is very, is very trauma informed, frankly. And, and that's something like really, really critical for, for law enforcement agencies to be doing human trafficking trainings and to understand it from the lens of a victim. Because this issue is so big and so nuanced, is there, is there one thing about this topic that you would like everyone in the world to know? And if so, what would it be? I think the, the like intersectionality of the issue, how it's so interwoven with so many other issues in our, in our countries, in our world, like race and trafficking, do like foster care and trafficking, homelessness and trafficking, right? Like uh, poverty and trafficking. We spoke a little bit about like, there's so many layers to like, why trafficking happens. And it really points to all of these other social justice issues that are happening. How would you feel about a universal basic income? Just out of curiosity. (laughs) Not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I do wonder, like, you know, and and I'm sure there's like research being done on like countries that offer 
things like universal healthcare and um, more, more support for, if you look at the numbers of trafficking, so there's a report that comes out every year, um, the trafficking in persons report that does a, uh, it's like a comprehensive list of every country and they're, they're ranking on human trafficking, like the, the steps that they're taking to combat it. Um, and there is definitely a, a difference in, in countries that, uh, that are more supportive of their communities. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. And I mean, even, um, even in countries where there is maybe a more robust welfare state, there's still like vulnerabilities that can be exploited. I don't know. I'm thinking about there was a, ca- a case in Canada not too long ago where a bunch of um, Jamaican farm workers uh, here on like the seasonal agricultural work program, they wrote like an open letter about rampant exploitation. And it's something that the Jamaican government actually is investigating now. Um, and I, I just think that really goes to like dispelling that myth you were talking about before that like Canada or other wealthy countries are sort of immune from this issue. Yeah. And and I see it like so much in the, in the U.S. here, like in some of the, the wealthiest areas there, there is trafficking. Like I say, you know, it's, it's definitely impacted, like poverty definitely impacts human trafficking, but that's not to say again, don't like not to general generalize because you can absolutely become a victim of trafficking, even if you have a, a different financial situation. Maybe there's another vulnerability there, right? Like you you grew up without like support of your parents and then you're, I, again, I, this is just one example. You're in a situation with, a, you have like the boyfriend situation and you're really make that boyfriend your whole life. And, um, then he starts asking you to do things for him and it's for the, for the health of your relationship. And again, that psychological coercion piece. So what, like, what's the one solution then? What's, uh, what's the bandaid? <laughs> what, what can we do to solve this problem? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I love what you said about like the prevention, like, well, and, and that's like our first pillar because right. Like how can we stop it before it starts? Like, where do we need to look upstream? And it's like, I, I mentioned a few, like, we've been talking a lot about income, like it would be so much like, it's not a one size fits all, but I think like our, our, so much of our prevention work is like with specific communities that are being targeted for human trafficking. So we need to cut the cord. Like we need to stop it, look upstream and stop it before it starts. That's the solution. Is this an issue that seems like it's getting better or are we concerned that especially the way that climate change is going, we're going to be experiencing more instability globally. And so is this something that like is trending in the wrong direction in your experience as somebody who's been kind of close to this for a little while? Is climate change going to make things worse basically? And, and, (laughs) and if not, then good. (laughs) Yes, it will. Like so many things it is, it is getting worse. Like our, there's so many other issues that are getting worse alongside human trafficking um, that are impacting human trafficking. I suppose because it's such a such a broad subject and people fall into it from so many different directions that if other things that we do are also getting worse than that particular issue. So I almost, it's almost too big. Like it's almost too big of an issue. How do you personally feel about working with something that is like... Yeah, it's in some sense like a barometer of how well we're doing on equality generally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, is it too much? I feel really lucky because I get to, from where I sit, no, because like I'm surrounded by thousands of Dressember advocates that are like really taking a stance against human trafficking. So I'm hopeful. Like I think you know, we, we've made a tremendous impact through this quirky style challenge of people wearing dresses and ties in the month of December and people really, really are showing up. I I see it all the time. It happened with me. Like once you learn about this, it's kind of hard to turn a blind eye. It's like you open this can of worms and then it's like, I have to do something about this. Like whether it's from like the climate aspect, like you were saying, maybe it's from the ethical fashion standpoint and you only want to shop consciously now. Like Whatever it is, wherever your lane is, it's. It, I find it hard to like hear about it, like listen to this podcast, and then and then not be fired up to do something about it. So I'm encouraged always by like the work that Dressember is doing and our partners, and it's definitely making an Im- an impact. Like I've seen it firsthand. I visited our partners, and 
the work that they are doing is is phenomenal on the ground. Do you guys ever worry that the because it's a style challenge and it encourages more consumption within the fashion industry um, because most people don't wear dresses for December. Um, it, is that something? At least that, not when it snows in December. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, I know that because you, this organization feels like it's really quite thoughtful. And I want to hear what you, what kind of pushback you get. Why, why the style challenge? It's like, does anybody ever feel like it's diminishing such a huge issue to be doing something so quirky? Yeah, we definitely, you know, everyone's going to have haters and like, it's, <laughs> it's hard to wrap your head around. Like, a lot of the way that we fundraise is like people posting in their dresses and ties, like smiling. A lot of our imagery, like we're really sensitive to not using um, a lot of like human trafficking imagery that, that we spoke about and more like more leading with like lightness and hopefulness. And that can rub people the wrong way when we're posting like smiley photos in cute dresses saying that we're going to combat human trafficking. But like our founder has the best answer to this and like in short, basically, it's like, do you have a better idea? <laughs> like, do you have another suggestion on how to end this? Because we're raised, we've raised $16 million doing it and, and created such an impact. So you have to do something a little bit more like fun and creative. And that creativity is driving the impact. Like people are doing crazy things in dresses and ties in the month of December, right? Going in the snow in a, in a dress and tights or like we just posted on our Instagram, like somebody rock climbing in tights. I mean, sorry, in a dress. And that is how they're, they're getting people to donate to their campaigns. So it is working. Uh, I, I know it can seem like a little bit like the connection can be missing there. And I, we're, we're onto something. I think it's working. So the, the numbers aren't lying. We're, we're definitely making an impact. And then I also love Kyla, what you said about, um, consumption, because it was pretty early on and in December when it's like, okay, we're telling people to wear dresses every day, but yeah, we don't want them to go out and buy 31 dresses, right? Like cheap dresses that they're going to sit in their closet. So we are really encouraging of like, we have people that wear the same dress every day, or like we'll, we'll do posts around like styling four dresses for the whole month or like one dress for the whole month. Um, and just being thoughtful about like where you purchase your dresses, like thrifting, or we have our ethical fashion directory, which, which is full of brands that we have vetted ethical brands. So if like, you do want to treat yourself to a new dress, shop those brands because they, we vetted them and they are ticking all the boxes for fair labor standards. Yeah. We talk about like creating a capsule wardrobe. So yeah, the last people, that's a big barrier. People will say, Oh, I can't do dress number. I don't have 31 dresses. And we're like, you don't, you don't need 31 dresses. You need, you need one or a tie. Like we encourage, it's kind of like choose your own adventure. Like if you want to wear a tie, a bow tie a dress, like it's not so much about the dress. It's more an avenue, right. To, to do this like quirky style challenge. I, I really liken it to Movember. That's kind of the the comparison that I've been making in my head. It's like, you're growing a mustache for a month. That's not so hard, you know? <laughs> yeah. And right. It's like, it's just like kind of the statement you're making and, and like kind of a, it's a tangible thing you can do, right? Like you can see it. You see someone doing it. We have these pins that say, ask me about my dress that people wear or, or tie in the month of December. And that's a great conversation starter. And then like, who know, who knew someone's going to say, like, oh, tell me about your dress. And then you're going to talk about human trafficking. Well, and it's a topic that I don't think, I don't know, this might be my own personal opinion, but... It's a podcast, Kyla. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I won't apologize for my opinion. I think, I think that a lot of the issue that, like, like, obviously, yes, most of the problems are systemic and that people aren't being supported, but also a huge part of the, like, a huge barrier to people leaving a situation where, like, it's too late, the systems are already set up, like, let's support people in leaving. But a huge barrier to that is the fact that nobody knows it's happening and no one's talking about it. Yeah. Step one is like identifying it, right. Accepting that it's happening and then knowing how to identify it. And then like, okay, what are, what are we going to do about it? And like, it's a really hard issue to engage with rightfully. So you have to be like incredibly qualified to work with victims and survivors of human trafficking. So like I was saying, this, this lights a fire in a lot of people and there's like not a lot you can do. Like you can't really volunteer with these organizations. So December is just brilliant and that it comes in in a way that's like, like I said, like very tangible and you can absolutely like help victims and survivors by participating in December. So I'm going to wind us down here and I wanted to finish with like a really nice question, which is like, what's something that you're really proud of? 
that maybe not necessarily dress Sember, but like one of the organizations they work with, or even like, I don't know, maybe like some policy that you voted for, like that went through, like what's something that's really like affected you um, recently that you're really proud of? We are really big at Dress Ember about like not reinventing the wheel, right? There's so many amazing anti-trafficking organizations and we want to collaborate with them and partner with them and resource them. And we always said like we we wouldn't have our own programs unless we needed to start our own program. And it was expressed by a few survivors. Let's see what year are we in? <laughs> last year, early last year, we've talked a little bit about like financial stability and access to education that there wasn't weren't a lot of programs for survivors to pursue an education. And we kept hearing this feedback, like in order to get that financial stability, right, to have a competitive resume, the first step is getting the the qualification that you need. So long story short, a year and a, a year or so later, after having these conversations, we launched our survivor scholarship program that provides any kind of educational endeavor a survivor wants to pursue from like cosmetology school we have a PhD candidate right now, community college, whatever, any kind of education, we provide scholarships for that. So it's too soon to see like the long-term results of it, but um, we've had about eight survivors receive scholarships now. And it's just, it's so incredible, like kind of walking alongside them in that way and just in support and like just taking that, taking that one thing off of their plate, right? Like education is expensive. And I was talking a little bit about the demographic and the age and a lot of people's trafficking experience happened when, when some of the rest of us were in like high school or college. So they didn't, not all, but many didn't get to pursue the education that they wanted, which led them to the job that they now have. So I'm really proud of it. It's, it's really, it's a really special program and I think it's going to be super impactful. Marissa, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I really, this is such a fascinating, I mean, I don't know, that's a kind of a depressing word to use, but it is. It's so interesting because it's so huge and it's so nuanced and it's also so important. It's always it's so important. This affects so many people, many of whom are already marginalized or just, it's just like, it's also like, like, yes, this, this affects men, but it's very much a women's issue. And I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. And I just wanted to check in and say, like, is there anything that I didn't ask that you wish that I had or anything final that you wanted to say? I would just love to share some resources. Like, I know this is incredibly overwhelming. Like, there's a lot to a lot to hold on to here. Um, and it takes a long time. <laughs> like, uh, I am by no means an, an expert, I, would, I wouldn't say, but I've had so many years of of working in anti-trafficking and studying it. And I'm still learning every single day. So it's overwhelming, but there are amazing resources out there. We work really hard on our blog to make like digestible content. So Dress Ember's blog is a great, a great starting point. Um, we have like a whole resources page with those statistics that I mentioned, even just on Instagram, we're sharing a lot of like vetted, reliable information about the issue. Yeah, we try to make it a little bit digestible. So just wanted to share share some resources. The podcast, um, like you mentioned, is the only podcast I know of that is interviewing survivors of trafficking and sort of like pass, passing the mic, if you will, um, so that they can be empowered to tell us what we want, what we should know about human trafficking. Yeah, and I really, I've really genuinely been enjoying the podcast. I'm almost caught up. I have to take it in spurts because I recently binge listened to an episode, uh, a CBC show. Uh, I'll, I'll put it in the notes if anyone else is curious because I forget the title right now, but it, it was a CBC show about um, residential schools in Canada. And I just did not have the emotional capacity to binge listen to Dress Embers, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm working through it. I'm nearly, I'm nearly caught up. <laughs> yeah, it is very heavy and like major trigger warning. Um, there's a lot of sensitive content in there. So just, yeah, like you said in the beginning, I think listening to this podcast, stress numbers and digesting all of this information like it's really important to take care of yourself while doing so yeah and it's important to remember that I often forget when I'm on my news downward spirals you know yep I know there's <laughs> so much happening that we want to like stay up to date with but sometimes you just need to shut it off okay great well, that is a wonderful way to say goodbye thank you Marissa um if any listeners would like to reach out to someone for more support, you can 
contact the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline, which I will also put in the notes, but the number is one 833 And you don't have to be in crisis to call a crisis line as i've as i've learned like they're just there for you that's what it's for <laughs> like ask questions you know like they're there to educate and help so if if you do feel like you're in a position where you or someone you know could use the help of the human trafficking hotline it's that 18339001010 so please do reach out for help if you feel like it's needed and uh, also, happy Giving Tuesday. So quick like reminder to everybody uh, that it's Giving Tuesday today. Hopefully you didn't do too much shopping over the Black Friday weekend because we are very uh, anti-consumption here. And, <laughs> and like, I'm not judging you. Um, yeah, no judgment. If you got a sweet deal on something, yeah, good for you. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I'm judging you a little bit, but like no more than I would judge myself for doing the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you can offset that by maybe making a recur like set up a recurring donation to an organization you care about, whether that's um, in the human trafficking space or maybe I donate every month to the BCSPCA. And I've been told that they're not the best organization for animal rights. And I'm like, I don't care. I like them. So, you know, do what <laughs> feels right to you. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I wanted to just also add like a personal invitation to everyone listening and to you both as well to please join us this December. It's not too late to sign up. You can sign up November 30th, December 1st, 2nd, 3rd. We also are doing December for a day. So you can just do it for the first day of the month and all the information's on our, on our Instagram. We have like a link tree so you can sign up for December Canada. All your um, donors will receive tax receipts and yeah, I hope you all will join us. I am so jazzed about it. I have all of my dresses picked out. I'm going to post every day, which I never do. But Kristen and I have already talked about how we want to like be more active on social media. So this is actually a really cool challenge that I'm taking on for myself to like engage more on social media because I'm scared of social media. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>